History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 87, The Third Invasion. Last time, we covered the Spartan invasion of Anatolia as it ramped up from raids and defending rebellious cities to open campaigning and conquering Greek loyalists. First, this was led by the Spartan general Dercyllidas, and then their new king, Agesilus II. At first, Tissaphernes had overall command of the Western theater, but the Spartans played him like a fiddle, tricking the satrap into sending his army into the wrong direction repeatedly and taking free reign to campaign elsewhere. Ultimately, Artaxerxes II had enough. He sent a noble named Tithrostes to replace and execute the satrap of Lydia in 394. At the same time, the Persians recruited their former enemy, the Athenian admiral Conon, to command the Persian navy in the Aegean. Successfully disrupting trade with Sparta's new ally, Pharaoh Neferud of Egypt, and seizing the island of Rhodes before embarking on a new and disruptive project. War broke out in Greece as Thebes provoked Sparta into a wider conflict then began calling on other Greek powers for aid. With satrap Pharnabazus of Hellespontine Phrygia as his co-commander at sea, Conon's agents took 10,000 Dariks from the great king into the west to entice other cities, unhappy with Spartan hegemony, and offer Persian support in a war against the Lacedaemonians. They were successful, turning cities from Thrace to the Peloponnese itself against Sparta. Most disastrous of all for the Spartans, their longtime defenders in Corinth sided with the growing Greek alliance and became the new seat of the Allied War Council. As the so-called Corinthian War escalated in Greece, Conon and Pharnabazus defeated the Spartan fleet at sea 
and began retaking rebel cities up and down the Ionian coast. Agesilus was forced to take his army and abandon the war in Asia altogether to defend the homeland when his co-king fled into exile, leaving Sparta with a 14-year-old boy as their only king in town. Crossing the Hellespont in their last remaining ports, the Spartan army sailed from Abydos to Sestos and raced through Thrace to outrun the oncoming winter of 394-393, just barely reaching Greece in time to relieve his embattled countrymen and their few remaining allies. Ironically, this took him on almost the exact route traversed by Xerxes' invasion force 86 years earlier. When he reached Thessaly with little trouble, but then found himself in an entirely hostile region, but one that was sparsely populated, Agesilus led the Spartan army on a fighting campaign moving south toward Boeotia, where they finally encountered a full force from Thebes and their Thessalian allies. Agesilus was victorious in the Battle of Coronea, despite his veteran forces being outnumbered. But it was one of the bloodiest battles in classical Greek history all the same. But this is not casting through ancient Greece, so let's get back to Persia for a minute. Artaxerxes further authorized 500 talents, the value of about 150 tons of silver to fund the war effort in Greece in late 394. Conon went to Corinth to deliver the first installment, and then returned to his duties as admiral of the Persian fleet, joining Pharnabazus to defeat Sparta and enforce their claim to rule Ionia. Thinking that must have put the kibosh on any further Spartan plans for the east, Conon advised Pharnabazus as they toured the newly captured Greek cities. At this point, somebody had to have learned a lesson from almost 150 years of intermittent Ionian resistance to Persia, Athens, and Sparta. The Greek cities of the Persian Empire were happiest when left to their own devices outside of paying tribute. Pharnabazus, perhaps with a little help from Conon, finally recognized this. He promised the Greeks of the Eastern Aegean that he would not install new garrisons in their cities so long as they behaved. With the business of actually governing the ungovernable Greeks out of the way, they put in at Ephesus, with Pharnabazus handing control of the navy over to Conon, and recruiting an army from Lydia to reinforce his own levies and mercenary force up in Phrygia. Conon sailed, and Pharnabazus marched north to Abydos and Sestos, now governed by our old friend Dercyllidas. In an attempt to break away the last key artery of Spartan control in the region, Pharnabazus besieged Abydos by land while Conon blockaded both cities. But the two Spartan strongholds would not budge. The Persian force spent all winter trying, but in spring of 393, they resigned themselves to a new strategy. The war in Greece had carried on with little regard for the stormy weather of a Mediterranean winter, but would doubtless escalate as the conditions improved. 
Conan remained in the Sea of Marmara to command the fleet in a blockade of the holdout cities. But Pharnabazus turned his sights to the west, taking 90 Persian triremes and a complement of mercenaries, Greek, Thracians, and others, to the Greek island of Milos, on the southwestern edge of the Cyclades. It was the farthest west a Persian fleet, or indeed a Persian general, let alone a satrap, had been since the retreat from Plataea in 479. I do have to wonder if Pharnabazus thought about his great-grandfather, Artabazus, who led the last Persian survivors away from Greece all those years ago. But Milos was just a base of operations. Pharnabazus took his ships even further, going where no Persian army had gone before, the very shores of the Peloponnese itself. When Xerxes invaded, Corinth defended the Isthmus from any attempt to invade by land, and the domineering Athenian navy guarded them by sea. Neither was true in 393. Once the command center was established, Pharnabazus called for Conon to give up the siege and join him. At the time, Agesilaus was campaigning in Argive territory, and Pharnabazus may have been hoping to relieve them. Ultimately, Xenophon attributes the Spartan king's retreat to a series of bad omens, but it is hard to imagine that Pharnabazus wasn't a factor. The combined Persian-Athenian fleet invaded Messenia, the country where all of the inhabitants had been reduced to Helot serfdom by Sparta centuries earlier. It was a crucial breadbasket for the Peloponnesian League, and Pharnabazus planned to plunder it, as Agesilaus and his predecessors had plundered Phrygia, hoping to incite a Helot revolt against the Spartans. However, it was not a land of harbors, and when Agesilaus pulled out of Argos, Pharnabazus ordered his troops to withdraw. There just wasn't anywhere where they could properly land to stage a real invasion. Rather than returning to Milos early, Pharnabazus had a better idea. The island of Kithira is located just eight and a half kilometers, five miles, off the coast of Laconia, the Spartan home territory. Pharnabazus moved to seize the island as another base to threaten Spartan trade and naval strategy. Afraid of being cut off from the outside world in a siege, the island surrendered without a fight, and Pharnabazus picked an Athenian officer from his fleet to act as governor. Athenian or no, this was an officer of the Persian fleet installed as a local governor by a Persian satrap. It was entirely normal for the Persians to pick someone from the local culture to rule on a local level. For all intents and purposes, he had just claimed Kithira as Persian territory, the furthest western claim in the empire's history. Just like that, the oft-forgotten third Persian invasion of Greece proved to be the most successful. This governor would hold Kithira for the remainder of the war. But Pharnabazus was a satrap. He had a province to govern and had to return. 
Conan offered to take charge of the fleet and keep it in the field while Pharnabazus was away. He planned to cover the maintenance and salaries with the tribute from all of the recently recaptured islands, places that were not factored in to the satrap's existing tax burdens. He also asked Pharnabazus to release more funds from Artaxerxes to speed up the reconstruction of the Athenian walls, both around the city and connecting it to its port at Piraeus. His argument was sound. Not only would this infuriate the Spartans and protect one of Persia's strange new allies in Greece, but it would reopen the only harbor capable of supporting a fleet of this size. Pharnabazus was of the same mind, and while the satrap went to Corinth to meet with the Allied War Council before going home, Conon went to Athens to get to work on those walls. In Anatolia, Tithrostes had no sooner settled into the satrap's palace in Sardis than he was already replaced. It's possible that he was never meant to be a permanent fixture in Anatolia, merely an interim governor who had been available when Artaxerxes tired of Tissaphernes. However, it's also very possible that agreeing to an armistice with Agesilus the previous year provoked the great king. In the last episode, we saw multiple examples of such truces breaking down when Artaxerxes urged more troops into the region, and we will continue to see the same thing play out in the future. Regardless of his own reasons, Artaxerxes wanted someone he could trust to command in Lydia, so he sent Tirabazus. This is the same Tirabazus who had rescued the king during the Battle of Kunaxa and opposed Xenophon as the regional governor of western Armenia. Tethrostes disappears after this point. Maybe he was executed, maybe just removed from high office. It's also possible that he had failed on the front in Egypt, which we'll get to in a few episodes. And that failure is why he was removed. But in all likelihood, it's probably some combination of the two based on the available evidence. One of Tirabazus's first tasks was dealing with a Spartan embassy that arrived in Sardis, led by a Spartan aristocrat named Antalkidas, trying to disrupt Persian support for the Allies, especially Athens and its new walls. Antalkidas himself had proposed the idea of negotiations in the first place, to the frustration of King Agesilus, who, perhaps more aware of the Persian political situation, opposed any overture. To the rest of Sparta, this looked like the Persians were just handing the Athenians their old empire, after all of the shared struggles to bring Athens to heel barely a decade earlier, and the ephors overruled the king. The satraps of Lydia and Hellespontine Phrygia were often competitors for Achaemenid royal favor and resources, and the power dynamic in Anatolia had been strained for years. In principle, Lydia was the greater and more prestigious satrapy. But ever since Tissaphernes first arrived, Pharnabazus had been the older and more dynastically secure satrap. His family had ruled Phrygia since 479, as a series of different governors came and went down in Sardis. 
This caused no shortage of problems in the Ionian War, at least before Cyrus was appointed Keranos to rule over both satrapies. And the Spartans hoped to repeat that experience as the beneficiaries of Persian infighting. But the Aegean was too anti-Spartan at this point for the embassy to travel unnoticed. By early 392, Conon and a delegation from Athens showed up as well. After listening to both sides bicker, Tiribazus decided to rule on precedent. He deemed Athens the more significant threat and had Conon arrested, apparently unaware or refusing to believe that Pharnabazus had authorized reconstruction of the walls. Tiribazus personally returned to court with Conon in chains to inform Artaxerxes of this grave Athenian threat. You have to imagine Artaxerxes just kind of exhausted with all this Greek nonsense by now. Very frustrated. Red in the face, kneading his brow, pulling out his hair or beard. Something like that. He had a goal. That goal was beating Sparta and re-establishing Persian control of the Aegean coast without constant European-Greek interference. Conon was an officer in command of a fleet composed of ships and sailors almost entirely from Phoenicia and Cyprus. One of his officers was literally the king of Sidon. He had met with Artaxerxes, explained his plans, and chosen Pharnabazus as his supervisor. Under Achaemenid royal ideology, stretching back to Cyrus the Great, the king of kings was king of the world. His writ, bestowed on him by the great god Ahura Mazda, knew no material boundaries. There were those that refused to acknowledge his power, but Greece was not one of those lands. First the Ionians in the 540s, then the Greek colonies in Thrace in 513, then Athens in 510, and many of the islands of the Aegean in the 490s, Thessaly and Boeotia in the 480s, and finally Sparta and the Peloponnesian League as far as Syracuse in Sicily in the 410s, had all submitted themselves to Persian power. Artaxerxes I had established the precedent of allowing Greeks to govern their own affairs, so long as they did no harm to the empire in the Peace of Callias. Darius II had confirmed this policy in his alliance with Sparta, but now the Spartans had risen up against the king, and that could not stand. Artaxerxes stripped Tiribazus of his satrapy after maybe a year, and sent a new satrap of Lydia in the form of a noble called Struthus. He was under strict orders to take command of the situation in the West and pursue an exclusively anti-Spartan policy. He was also sent with a message for Pharnabazus, not as a reprimand, but a promotion to become the overall commander of the war against Egypt, possibly satrap of Egypt if he could retake his territory. For his service to the crown, Pharnabazus was allowed to marry Apame, one of Artaxerxes II's own daughters. His son, by an existing wife, Ariobarzanes, became the new satrap of Hellespontine Phrygia. 
when I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Back in Greece, internal divisions in Corinth allowed Sparta to secure its position while Conon was away. Corinth had been ruled by an oligarchy for a long time. That was Sparta's preference in all of its allies. But with Sparta no longer part of the political equation, a lot of disenfranchised people started thinking that an Athenian-style democracy looked pretty nice. Athens had, mostly, been democratic for 200 years, with Argos just behind them. Thebes had been a democracy since the end of Xerxes' invasion. With three of the most powerful allies in the war supporting the Democrats, the oligarchs fled to the Spartan army and provided intelligence that allowed the Spartans to take the primary Corinthian port. Conon's fate is an issue of debate with some sources claiming that Tirabazus had him executed, and others that Artaxerxes let him go. But at more than 50 years old, the Athenian admiral just returned to his friends on Cyprus and retired. Either way, he drops out of the picture here, but his son will pop up once or twice in future episodes. With Xenophon happily retired to an estate in Olympia, to begin his career as a writer, and Theseus's narrative now long since finished, we are out of the realm of eyewitnesses, and most of the dramatic action for Greek history shifts to Greece at this point. Xenophon's Hellenica and Diodorus's universal history just put more focus there, 
with fewer details about what was happening on the Persian side of things. We've already been seeing that, with details about maneuvers and tactics slowly slipping away from our battle scenes. Never mind any other Greek sources, mostly speechwriters like Isocrates and Athenaeus, who only reference events in the East occasionally to support their broader arguments. That's not to say we are at a complete loss, just that it gets less detailed. As I said before, you'll have to wait for Casting Through Ancient Greece to catch up if you want the full story on the Greek side of things. For the rest of this episode, and most of the following episodes, I'll check in with Europe to keep the narrative going. But the Corinthian War is now a largely Greek affair, and quite frankly, other problems will start kicking up in Persian territory. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Satrap Struthus just got here, and here is an active war zone. When he arrived in Sardis, Struthus made it clear that he was there to fight Sparta. Desperate to distract the Persians from supporting their enemies in Greece, the Spartans resolved to try and retake some of Ionia. To do this, they wanted someone with experience. Agesilus was needed in Greece, and Dercyllidus was responsible for holding off Persian attempts to retake control of the Hellespont completely. So they sent Thibron back, the guy from episode 85 who had very little success. Guess how that went. How exactly Thibron kept getting these appointments isn't clear. It may have been nepotism through some relative in the ephors or the royal families, or maybe he had some undocumented battlefield prowess in pitched battles against his enemies in Greece. Either way, he was a terrible raider. His initial venture into Ionia had 7,000 men, 13,000 after joining Xenophon and the mercenaries. This time, he had 8,000, and neither venture was all that useful. He preferred to wait in camp, entertaining himself with athletic contests, while sending scattered raiding parties out into the Lydian plains. They weren't given any real direction beyond go attack some towns or whatever. Struthus arrived, and the new satrap led a large cavalry force out from Sardis, ambushing these raiding parties one after another. Eventually, this forced Thibron to gather all of his remaining forces to try and fend off the assault. But he did not provide clear orders or strategy to his officers, and Struthus, presumably a veteran of some undocumented conflicts in the Eastern Empire, smashed right through the Greek lines, killing many of his enemies, including Thibron himself. Sparta sent a new general, named Defridus, along with some reinforcements to make up for the losses in Lydia. Defridus did a much better job. Simply a more thoughtful commander, he directed raids at specific targets, like the family of Struthus on their way from Parsa to Sardis. He captured the satrap's son-in-law and wife only releasing them in exchange for a ransom, which Struthus paid and the Spartans used to hire mercenaries. Elsewhere, the political quagmire of the Aegean Sea got ever more complicated. At sea, 
the Spartan fleet was once again besieging the island of Rhodes to retake that strategic position on both the trade route to Egypt and the Carian coast. They couldn't quite dislodge the Persian garrison, but in one attack they captured Theseus, who was still on the island with plans to go to Sparta as a diplomat for Artaxerxes. He was taken back to the enemy capital, but as a prisoner charged with treason against the Peloponnesian League. He was acquitted, possibly because he was able to flash Clearchus's signet ring and prove himself as a friend to Sparta. So they allowed him to return to his home city on Cnidus, retiring from Persian service and bringing his Persica to an end. In Greece, the war waged on as both sides contested the countryside around Corinth. In Egypt, Pharaoh Neferud died of natural causes and was succeeded by Pharaoh Hakor, of some unclear relation to his predecessor after a brief power struggle. Hakor expanded on Egypt's policy of stoking conflict in the Persian Empire. He provided financial support to another minor revolt in Pisidia. He began stoking rebellions in the Levant, something we will talk about more next time. Most complex of all, he sent money and grain to Athens while also sending support to Sparta. To some degree, he was probably trying to prolong the Corinthian War and Persia's involvement in it. But his aid to Athens was primarily to encourage Athenian aid to King Evagoras of Salome on the island of Cyprus. Though Cyprus was still divided up between twelve petty kingdoms, Salome was by far the most powerful, not unlike Sparta in Greece. We haven't talked much about Cypriot politics since the island's participation in the original Ionian Revolt, aside from a few brief appearances when Athens invaded during the reigns of Xerxes and Artaxerxes I. The petty kings of the island had generally remained loyal vassals throughout the 5th century BCE, with different hegemons rising and falling. So long as they paid tribute and provided ships for the Persian navy, the great kings and their satraps in Lydia and Assyria tended not to care. Evagoras himself was an example of that. While Persia was more concerned with the Ionian War against Athens, a series of power struggles took place in Salome. One king of Phoenician descent was replaced by another, who in turn was deposed by Evagoras, ethnically Greek. He recruited allies in Cilicia and took his city without much fuss. Given the general conflicts with Greece and the influence of the Phoenicians in Persian naval affairs, he was unsure of how the Persians would respond. So he sheltered Conon of Athens as an insurance policy, which ultimately wasn't needed in Conon's time on the island. But over the early years of the Corinthian War, Evagoras' relationship with Persia started breaking down. When the Persian fleet was assembled in 394, Evagoras met his obligations. But as the situation developed, things started to change. Egypt was investing heavily in enemies of the empire. 
Cypriot ships and sailors were basically given over to Athens in 393, allowing the Spartans to raid Salome's territory the next year. There were just too many grievances all at once. Evagoras was doing his thing, demanding that the other kings of Cyprus acknowledge him as their overlord, and three of them resisted. In the ensuing war, one of those kings was killed. The slain vassal upset the balance of power on the island too much. Evagoras was getting too powerful, and Artaxerxes ordered him to stand down in 392. He refused, and began raiding Persian territory. This was a major disruption for the Persian fleet, still under Athenian command. Artaxerxes ordered the shipyards of Phoenicia and Cilicia to build more triremes, but they could only come out so fast and still needed crews. Evagoras needed ships of his own as well, and recalled large portions of the fleet which was with Athens. The remaining Phoenician and pro-Persian sailors left some of their ships behind for Athens to provide crews, but it largely transitioned to an Athenian fleet gifted to them by the Persians. Much like the Spartan fleet, ironically. That brings us to an interesting new player. With Ariobarzanes still too inexperienced to take command, and Struthus dealing with the Spartans in Anatolia, the normal candidates for dealing with the Cypriot problem weren't available. But somebody had to cross over and lead an invasion against Evagoras. So meet Hecatomnus, the governor of Caria. After Tissaphernes got his satrapy, Hecatomnus took his place. He was the king, or governor, or satrap of Caria, depending on what book you happen to read. Several authors, especially older ones, associate the rise of Hecatomnus with a reorganization of the Anatolian satrapies after Cyrus the Younger's revolt, claiming that Caria and Cilicia were elevated to full satrapy status. The primary sources don't really bear this out. If Caria was a satrapy, why is Hecatomnus entirely absent from the Spartan invasions of his own territory? Why does Xenophon repeatedly reference Tissaphernes' estates and palaces in Caria? On top of it all, Hecatomnus is a decidedly Greek name. Why would the Greeks keep trying to negotiate with the Persians if there was a Greco-Carian satrap of the same rank? No. Caria was not a satrapy yet. Hecatomnus is also called the King of Caria and that may be closer to the truth. He ruled from the ancient Carian capital at Mulasa, and very well could have been some kind of minor vassal who was elevated to regional governor by Tissaphernes. The best evidence for the addition of new satrapies actually comes after the Corinthian War, and what better time than after a war to redraw the map, not in the middle of one. It still raises one question. How could a man with a Greek name and a hereditary claim to Caria become a satrap? He would be the first non-Persian to ever hold the office, 
and his children, the Hecatomnid dynasty, would be some of the only other examples. One possibility is that much like the kings of Cilicia, Cyprus, and Phoenicia, they weren't actually satraps, just vassals. However, it is quite unlikely that Artaxerxes II took territory away from Lydia and gave it to a loosely controlled vassal king. The more intriguing option that ties everything up in a neat bow is that Hecatomnus, or at least his children, were of mixed Persian and Greek descent. There is a little evidence to support this. He married one of his sons to one of his daughters. While sibling marriages were semi-common in the Achaemenid house, it was looked down on in ancient Greece almost as much as it is today, and the same held true for most of their neighbors. One of his other daughters is known to have married a Persian, as is one of his granddaughters. If we reframe Hecatomnus as only part Carrion, his role as satrap makes more sense. But for now, he's just a governor, tasked with leading the invasion of Cypriot Salome as overall commander and taking the reins of a freshly constructed Persian navy. His compatriot leading the fight on land was Autophrodates, another regional governor in Anatolia or satrap, depending on your translation. Eventually, he will be satrap of Lydia, but we know Struthace has that role at the moment. It doesn't stop sources both contemporary and modern from making the claim, though. Atophrodates minted coinage in several Ionian cities, for sure, but that does not confirm too much. He was also associated with Lycia, which may have been where he was stationed at this moment, a subordinate or a semi-autonomous overseer for the local Lycian dynasts. He and Hecatomnus spent 392 making preparations and then landed on the island to face Evagoras. So the Cypriot king put out a general call for allies in 391. Unsurprisingly, Egypt answered the call. Pharaoh Hakor was happy to stir up trouble and assisted Evagoras in invading and taking control of the Phoenician island of Tyr, as well as its dependencies on the mainland. More surprisingly, the Spartan fleet ignored this while the Athenians answered with an affirmative. Sparta had to focus on winning the war it already had, but despite Conan's insistence that they would not, some Athenians were thinking of this war as an opportunity to reclaim their place as the dominant power in the eastern Mediterranean. Separating Cyprus from Persia, with an Athenian ally as its new king, would make that all the easier. This led to a bizarre Athenian versus Spartan confrontation off the coast of Cyprus. The admiralty on both sides is such a revolving door that it doesn't even matter at this point. Ten Athenian triremes sailed to Cyprus to aid Evagoras, causing a Spartan fleet of nearly 30 ships to turn around from Rhodes and intercept them, capturing all ten Athenians. It was a bizarre situation, where Athens, allied with Persia, was stopped from aiding a rebel against the great king by the Spartans, 
who were at war with Persia. Concerned by the unexpected Spartan success, Athens sent another fleet, now 40 ships, to attack Spartan positions in the east. Rather than directly engaging the Spartan fleet, they went to the Hellespont, where they briefly stopped to negotiate the end of a civil war between Suthes and the Odrysian king in Thrace, so that the Thracians would join the Corinthian War as their allies, and by extension, allies of Persia. This also settled a serious regional threat to the Greek colonies in Thrace, which got them to join the anti-Spartan alliance too. The Athenians went all the way over to Byzantium, where they installed their own style of democracy, leaving a governor in place to charge a toll on any ship coming through the Bosporus so they could raise money for the war effort. Next, they went to Lesbos, where they finally faced the Spartan fleet, and expelled the last of the Spartan garrisons in the north before heading south to the Eurymedon River, hoping to intercept more Spartans and collect money from friendly cities in the region so they could take it back to the treasury in Corinth. Some of the Athenians did the Greek soldier thing and plundered villages along the Eurymedon, even though they were told not to, which led to their admiral being assassinated by locals, delaying any action against the Spartans while they waited for a replacement. Meanwhile, the Spartans sent Anaxibius, the former commander from Byzantium who had taken bribe money from Pharnabazus back in episode 85, and assigned him to raid the Hellespont with ten Spartan triremes and a thousand mercenaries, which quite possibly included some of the men he screwed over in 399. A few Aeolian cities changed hands, but nothing significant. The Spartans were just too unpopular and their forces were too small. Finally, back in Greece, Sparta tried and failed to take Corinth, losing all of their gains in the surrounding area instead. The real winner of that campaign was the Athenian general Iphicrates, who became quite famous for his battles against Sparta that year. Once Corinth was secure, Iphicrates was sent with eight ships and 1,200 men to intercept Anaxibius in Phrygia. At first, he just raided and captured Spartan claims in the Thracian Chersonese, but then he crossed over near Abydos, disembarking his army and sending his ships toward Byzantium to trick Anaxibius into thinking he was still on the move. It worked, allowing Ephricrates to ambush the Spartans near the city of Antandrus, modern Altinoluk, Turkey. Anaxibius himself was killed, and the Spartan force disbanded or fled. It was the last land battle of any note in Persian territory for the remainder of the war. The sea was a different matter, but I'll leave that until next time. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon. 
also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.